4.7 miles per hour. The speed, or maybe lack of speed, at which taxis travel in midtown Manhattan. It's a stunning factoid from a recent report on New York City traffic by Manhattan Institute fellow and all-around transit expert Nicole Gelinas. And if you think this is just a Manhattan problem, think again. CBC's 2017 resident feedback survey found traffic was one of the three issues of dissatisfaction in New York City. Dissatisfaction ranged from 78% in the Bronx to 88% in Staten Island. We're talking about traffic, mobility, and the MTA on this episode of What's the Data Point? And welcome to What's the Data Point from Citizens Budget Commission and Gotham Gazette. I'm Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. I'm Maria Dulles from the CBC. And Maria's gotten us off to a great start here, so we're going to jump right into our conversation momentarily. But if you've missed any recent episodes of What's the Data Point, we've had some really good discussions. Find us on your favorite podcast platform, or you can find all the episodes at the CBC or Gotham Gazette websites. And we have some great guests coming up. But Let's not overlook today's episode, and let's get right into it with Nicole Gelinas, as Maria said, Senior Fellow at the Manhattan Institute. She's Contributing Editor at City Journal and Columnist at the New York Post. We should not leave out. A lot of your great work is found there. Welcome. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Maria. So happy you're here. So Nicole's recent report is called Decongesting New York, How Gotham Can Get Its Gridlock Traffic Flowing Again. You, you write, um, it's a great report. It's got a lot of interesting history Maria and I were talking about um, and some really nice perspective. And one of the things that you write early on is that all these facets of New York as a quote unquote ungovernable city have, have at least for now, you know, been addressed in a major way except traffic and except congestion, which has actually gotten worse. Um, so that was very interesting perspective that you that you had there. Do you see this as like the the sort of big unsolved problem that, that the city's facing? Yeah. If you look at the 1960s when governing the city became much more complex, the problems that started to intensify then, unemployment, middle-class flight from the city to the suburbs, the crime problem, the drugs problem, the gun problem – all of these things, although they're not exactly solved, right. the city has sort of had them under control going on for two, three decades now. But the other problem that started to crop up in editorials about quality of life in the city in the 1960s was traffic. When Mayor Lindsay came into office in the mid-1960s, the New York Times said that traffic was both the city's worst visible problem and also the problem that would be easiest to fix. But here we are more than 50 years later, and we still haven't fixed the traffic problem. And in fact, traffic speeds, as Maria noted, are worse than they ever have been at less than five miles an hour going through peak midtown. So say a little bit more about how you diagnosed the problem here. You you went through in detail the challenge that the city is facing right now. Um, diagnose it. Explain a little bit more for folks how you capture the, the this issue. Well, there's a few things going on here. What's causing the traffic? We have a finite amount of road space. The city has not built in a mile of highway since the 1960s when the plan was to build an expressway across lower Manhattan. Lindsay said in 1969, which is 50 years ago this summer, that the lower Manhattan expressway is dead for all time. Since then, we've actually shrunk our street space. So we have a record number of people residents, visitors, people coming to their jobs, 
all competing for a shrinking amount of street space. And what does that what does that mean? Obviously, it means the most inefficient way of getting around, which is one person to a private car. That way of travel has suffered and been encroached on by bicycle lanes. It's more efficient for someone to move around on a bicycle. So we have 60,000 city bike rides a day, for example, and commuting into the city on private bicycle has quadrupled over the past decade. We have more pedestrian space. If you think of Times Square, even with the larger pedestrian plazas, you still can't walk around in Times Square when Broadway is just starting or getting out. There are still too many pedestrians on the streets, far more efficient way of getting around than a private car. Add to all of this that Uber and Lyft Mm. have made it cheaper and easier to ride around in a private car. We've tripled the number of four hire vehicle registrations over the same roughly a decade so something, we have something you pointed out, I, I believe, in the piece, unless I'm misremembering, but, you know, is that we should also not forget that people have black cars, you know, people have drivers, and that that's something that's been around a long time, but those cars are around too, and those are not Uber, you know, we've started to almost only talk about Ubers and Lyfts, but those cars are around as well, not to mention people's, you know, just private vehicles that they're driving around too. Yeah, and then we also have construction sites that if you if you walk around Midtown, entire lanes of the street grid are taken off to build a, a tower. If you look at uh, 53rd Street between 5th and 6th Avenue, busy thoroughfare, but two lanes out of the, one of the busiest blocks in Manhattan have been given over to the MoMA construction site going on for half a decade now. And so this, you can say, even if there's not a lot of traffic at the 12th Avenue side, at the 1st Avenue side, if you're trying to get across town, everyone is squeezing into this one lane pinch point with no warning, no management. And I think that's where we get into some of the solutions. Right. And the other part of this that you mentioned that I think is maybe not central but important is parking placards for government employees, right? Because it's not only about vehicles moving on the streets, but also the issue of parking and how parking is, is um, priced as well. Um, and, and and just other vehicles parking, double parking, right. deliveries have right. exploded, right? I, I, right. We've, we've talked about this a little bit before, but the you know, with, with the explosion of people getting deliveries from Amazon and Fresh Direct and things like that. You have trucks all over the place. That's absolutely right. Consumer behavior has changed and it's had an impact on on streets as well. But I think that, you know, the placard issue fascinates me for many reasons, one of which is, you know, it seems pretty logical that if you're going to start to tackle this, you tackle your own house first. (laughs) Right. And as you know, Mayor de Blasio gave out more parking placards to the, the teachers and educational workers the uh, the city also ha- has increased the public sector fleet of cars. And it's not, you know, one would say, of course, if we have a record population, we need more garbage trucks, we need more uh, police cars. But these are just small cars and SUVs that people are just using to go about their uh, business and working for the city. So is that necessary? I would say, and you know, I talked to Sam Schwartz, the former uh, traffic commissioner for the article, with the parking placards, we should start at zero. Zero them all out. If you have a compelling reason for a parking placard, you have to go and apply for this arduous process. And if that par- placard allows you free commuting parking, 
that should be a taxable benefit. I mean, this is a a, a, a six to $8,000 benefit a year. This should be sent as compensation to the IRS. And then there is the issue of illegal parking placards. Mm. You know, as the Twitter uh, feed, uh, placard mm-hmm. corruption says, right. everything from... Uh, a vest or a business card or a police manual put on the windshield to an expired placard to just a handwritten note at people parking in bus stops, on sidewalks, and no standing zones. And so this is something that it is low-level public corruption. corruption. The mayor has said he's going to, he said he started two separate crackdowns, but neither of them seems to have gone anywhere. This should be something where if you're caught doing this once, you get a stern warning, you're caught a second time, you have to go to the Department of Investigation and explain why you are repeatedly abusing the public trust. And this should be something that is considered not just a parking violation, but essentially theft of services by a government employee. Before we get to some of your recommended solutions and just some other thoughts on solutions and some of the things that have been put out recently by elected officials and and connect this to the MTA, let's talk about why this is a problem. I mean, we get that if you're in the congestion, that's a problem for you. Why do we care about this writ large? Why should folks who aren't caught in, you know, Manhattan traffic every day, why why should people care about this? Right. Well, first of all, I think the expectations have to be clear that nobody is is going to be zipping around Manhattan at 30 miles an hour, nor should they be. You want traffic to be relatively slow because of the number of pedestrians, bicyclists, children, and elderly people crossing the street. But should it be five miles an hour? Probably not. And we we can get closer back to 10 miles an hour, which is about where central London is. What does that do? It makes people's crosstown car trips more predictable and consistent. And it makes it, it, it lessens pollution. It means less productive time spent in the car. And it makes it easier for walkers and bicyclists too. I mean, if you go out there, you know, starting at four o'clock, you've got cars and trucks that are backed up through the intersections. If you're crossing the street, you have to walk in between cars and the crosswalk. You know, if you're trying to maneuver a wheelchair or a baby carriage, or you're just worried about squeezing between two idling cars. I mean, easing the traffic should improve the quality of life for everybody on the street. I was just going to say, you mentioned quality of life, you know, from the survey. Yeah. Yeah. What do you, Nicole, how much do you think the sort of decline of the MTA's performance, particularly the subway, is, is causing some of this? I think it's it's hard to quantify, although ridership on Uber and Lyft increasing basically mirrors the declining ridership on the subways over the past three years. But yeah, there's both a push and a pull. People are being pushed away from the subways and buses because of declining service, at least up until the past few months when the subways have been improving, declining bus speeds because the buses are stuck in traffic too, and plus there's the pull. It is much easier and cheaper to hire a Lyft or an Uber, and so we have these two factors. Yeah, and and if you talk about mobility, I think in in some of the quality of life outside of Manhattan, you know, people are getting around by bus, and the buses are incredibly slow because of the traffic issues. Um, yeah, this this issue is not. Ju- I mean, no, uh, around where Manhattan. I live, far out in Brooklyn, 
I mean, at certain times of the day, nobody's moving on the streets. It's unbelievable. Right. Yeah. And, and you know, even getting across neighborhoods has become difficult on car, which is kind of insane and frustrates many residents, um, you know, outside Manhattan. So, so we're talking economic issues, quality of life, which sort of is about the livability and I guess visit visitability of the city, yeah. right? I mean, this is an issue. Yeah, tourists. It's part of like the daily frustration, right? Yeah. You should feel happy. <laughs> you should feel happy during your day. You know, you shouldn't be frustrated before you even get out of right. your house. Whether you you're in like, the car or walking or that's right, yeah, that's yeah. right. Um, so, how does one think about how to solve this? I mean, it's been a problem for a long time. How do you think, Rand? Uh, you know, um, in a broad way, about how to finally make traffic governable in the city. Well, if you look back to the same 50 years of history since the city identified this as a crisis, one thing we know is that crackdowns don't work. I mean, it's almost comical that every single mayor since Lindsay has announced some kind of crackdown, and they even use the same terms for it. You know, Koch had a clear lanes program, just like de Blasio, where they're going to give more tickets to double park cars. They're going to crack down on placards. Sometimes it works for a few weeks, but it takes hundreds of extra highly paid police officers and enforcement agents, and then it's not sustainable. So it goes back to exactly the way it was. So what works? Having a reliable, consistent transit system that people want to use. And then the other thing is pricing the streets, which we have never tried. And so having congestion pricing to put a ask people to pay a financial value for access to these streets in the most inefficient vehicles that are available to them is something that would make people think twice about whether they have to drive in or whether they have to drive in at a particular time or on a particular day. So variable congestion pricing would be a big step. But it has to be done right. And, you know, there's congestion pricing the right way and maybe congestion pricing the wrong way, which may be what Albany is, is thinking of doing. So say more about that. <laughs> well, in order for this to work well, the city leadership should be engaged in it. If you think about the Bloomberg congestion pricing plan, which is a little bit more than a decade ago now, this was a city-conceived plan. The city council... Uh, wanted to just ask Albany for permission to do it. So the city would have designed it, the city would have set the prices, the city would have decided how the money is spent both on transit and on better roads and bridges. And in this case, it is Albany and essentially the governor who is saying it's going to be a state program. It'll be handled by by the MTA, so the streets will be treated just like the triborough bridges and tunnels. The pricing will be set by the state, and that could cause some problems down the line. For for example, say you want variable pricing where it's a Saturday before Christmas, so if you have to make your delivery that day at 2 p.m. by Rockefeller Center, maybe the congestion fee should be $50 for a truck, Whereas if you can make the same delivery at 2 a.m. that day, it could be free or it could be $5. But that type of flexibility is much better done by city DOT people not having to go through the bureaucracy of Albany. And the other thing is there's not any money to keep up the roads and the bridges in this plan. And so that's really a, a fairness issue and also a fiscal issue that if the roads and the bridges are what is generating the revenue 
why should all of that revenue go to Albany? Now, they've softened the language a little bit in the, the budget amendments that they put out a few weeks ago, but not enough to really give you any confidence that this isn't just a, a state revenue grab that's actually not going to improve congestion. Well, and you have lawmakers, especially in the state Senate, from the Hudson Valley, from Long Island, putting their two cents in saying, if we're going to do this, uh, basically commuter fee you know, to them – uh, we need more investment in LIRR and Metro North. And, you know, everybody wants different pieces of the puzzle. And, and there's a lot of we don't know what kind of system will come out of this. But obviously, we're trying to figure out from you what some of the guidelines should be, uh, even if it it's, gets messy in, in Albany. Yeah, I mean, it's very interesting that you bring up the Bloomberg plan, because I remember that very well as also. Um, and it was locally driven. And the sense would be that there would be another authority that would think very much about the needs of the MTA versus the needs of streets and allocate the dollars coming in from congestion pricing accordingly. We're sort of 10 years later, we're in a very different place in terms of the performance and the needs of the MTA, mm. which everybody feels is so critical to, of course, the cities and the, the region's competitiveness. Um, and I think, you know, there, there's a bit of a, of a more compelling case, I think, for giving the MTA a greater share of that just because of the raw need and of the fact that if you're going to, if the aim is to get people out of their cars, you have to shore up the service and you have to make sure there are really good options for people to get around. Um, but still, I think a big outstanding question is how that pot of money is divvied up and allocated. Um, I don't, you know, I don't think... I think the plan should be instituted with some level of variable pricing. I think that will be important for inducing the behavior change. I think getting to something more granular like you suggest would be super interesting and a good goal for later on. But I, I'm sort of at the point where I'm like, let's just get some version of this done. Mm -hmm. Let's get it done and then think about how to refine later on. What do you think the prospects are for this passing in the session? I think there's not as much of as an emergency that people think and that the governor wants people to think. This is the same type of emergency atmosphere that drove the payroll tax in 2009, where we basically got a billion and a half dollar annual tax for the MTA passed by the legislature in the middle of the night. And all of that money has been consumed by rising labor expenses, whether it's raises without productivity gains or the sort of skyrocketing cost of the healthcare benefits in particular. But in 2009, we did have a real fiscal emergency, at least. I mean, the MTA, the revenues had just cratered during the recession. They were slashing bus service. I mean, there was an argument that you have to do something now. And this time, that's not really true. The, the congestion pricing money is supposed to go to capital. And although there is an operating budget problem that the MTA faces real pressure with right now, there's no capital budget problem at the moment. If you look at what the state was supposed to provide the MTA for the current capital plan, which ends at the end of the year, they were supposed to provide $8.6 billion out of the state budget. They've they've provided only something like eight hundred million. So right. the state, to be the last yeah, the, the state yeah. still owes the the MTA eight billion dollars. That money should not come from congestion pricing. That should be in the next capital plan, if that makes any sense. Plus, the MTA they, they are still consistently slow in completing the projects that they've already started. Which so, is part of the reason that money hasn't been drawn down, right? Uh. 
Well, perhaps. <laughs> okay. Uh, the, the, that was my impression. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but they they don't they're not in a capital budget crisis right now. There is time to say, let's do congestion pricing right, and also let's see a real reform plan for the MTA before we award them all these new revenues. That, for example, before we do congestion pricing, the public should know the terms of the new labor agreement with the MTA's biggest union because we don't want the risk. That somehow this money is just once again consumed by the rising labor costs. I think that's absolutely right. <laughs> <laughs> and that's coming up this spring. Yes, but you know, conveniently, it it, it, it expires after the, after the budget right. season. But putting this, you know, I, I guess I, I'm not one to tell the governor what to do, but putting congestion pricing in the budget with everything else that's going on right now, reauthorization for mayoral control of the schools, a possible marijuana tax, and all of the social implications of that, a possible uh, pied-a-terre tax, there's sort of too much going on for people to digest and do it the right way. Which is part of the reason they might want to jam it through in the budget, right. and that's you know yeah, always... You know, I think what Nicole says is just so critical, and it's a point that's missing from the discussion, because we are having the debate about the capital plan in terms of what it should look like, more focus on state of good repair, more focus on signals, how big should it be, you know, what are the needs, um, should it be, you know, how do, how do we deal with the commuter rails, what share should they get? We're not having the discussion about the operating budget, and we're not having the discussion about what is driving those costs and bringing, you know, everybody's being asked to make a sacrifice. Drivers are going to make a sacrifice. Riders are going to pay higher fares. We might have additional taxes. But where is labor in this equation? And it's, you know, nobody's asking the question, and you don't get the sense that anything is happening on that front. And until the operating budget and the productivity of that workforce is increased, you know, the money will feel like it's evaporating. Yep. And it's not even the wages. You know, of, of course, these are difficult jobs. People deserve to have a middle-class income Absolutely. and get an inflation-based wage, you know, however, every year or so forth. But the health care benefits, if you, if you look at the pension and the health care benefits, they've basically tripled in cost over the past 15 years. And if, if you look at the cost of the health care plans, they're unsustainable over the long term. And so why aren't we thinking retirees over the age of 65, they should be going to the Medicare system. You know, the country has had universal health care for retirees for uh, multiple generations. If that's good enough for everybody else, why is that not good enough for the MTA people? And if you retire younger than 50, uh, 65, uh, that should be essentially your responsibility to d decide, am I ready to retire? Well, if I, if I don't have access to health care, maybe that keeps people working for a few more years, which is good. But this idea that we can uh, promise these retiree health care benefits, it does a disservice to the transit riders, and eventually it does a disservice to the retirees because the costs are just not, I mean, they've got a, a $20 billion unfunded liability for retiree health care. It's hard to see how they're ever going to pay that. So just at least just talking about it would be a step. And when the mayor and the governor recently put out a 10-point plan, that's that's not that's nowhere to be found, right? They, they, they agreed upon 10 principles they put forward. Again, this is it's a proposal. It's not. They can't just do it on their own. There are some aspects they might be able to push forward, but it needs to go through the state legislature for the most part. It includes congestion pricing, basically getting the mayor on board with it with some of his 
priorities for tweaking it. Um, but, you know, there's a little bit of MTA efficiency and reorganization in that plan, but they didn't highlight labor as a as a key factor. Right. Interestingly, they said that they want the MTA to keep spending growth to 2% a year. But without addressing the healthcare and the pension costs, that's basically impossible. So it's sort of it points to the hurry nature of this agreement that they sort of just dashed this off and the mayor took his two subway rides and it's sort of <laughs> done with. Yeah. So we need to be keeping an eye on those negotiations. We need to see, obviously, the, negoti- the those labor negotiations. But first, we need to see what might happen in this April 1 state budget uh, around congestion pricing. There's seems like there's a likelihood that if a congestion pricing plan is in the state budget, that the tolls and fees will not be set, that that will be kicked off to another entity to figure out in the future. Um, There might be some accommodations made that certain amounts of revenue goes here or there, LIR, you know, Metro North, et cetera. Um, But we need to be keeping an eye on that and, and the specifics there. Or if it doesn't go in the budget, continues in the legislative session, what's happening there. Um, and you, you know, you discuss in your piece about some of the solutions to the congestion traffic issue, how to toll and price road space, fixing mass transit to get people out of cars. Um, and then also this idea of street redesign and how we use our public space. And we just have a few more minutes, but let's talk about that a little bit because city council speaker, Corey Johnson, um, and, and feel free to, you know, sort of give us your thoughts on the proposal that he laid out. Um, you know, he wants municipal control of the subways and buses. I don't know if we have time to get too into that today. But he also says he's going to introduce legislation around a master plan for city streets. And that, to me, sounds like something that that you would be very intrigued by. Yeah, I think it's a great idea. And I know that the Corey Johnson plan, it's a it's a very tall order to bring back control of the subways and buses for various reasons, including that the taxes are set by the state and always will be set by a state. But it's a good sign that someone in a high elected office and who's running for mayor or exploring running for mayor is saying, I want to be responsible for this and I care about this. I mean, we don't we don't get that much from the current mayor sort of idea that, you know, I, I think Polly Trottenberg has done a pretty good job given the constraints that, that didn't exist during the Bloomberg years. But we certainly need a master plan for uh, where do we want to build out more bike lanes, more bus lanes? What is the timetable for these things? What's the schedule? Explaining to the public why we need these things and things like if we're going to shut down a subway line for a couple of years to modernize the signals, why not replace that above ground with a, a free bus that comes every minute and have a sort of bus caravan, just like Loda did after Hurricane Sandy? These things, they shouldn't be done in the sort of ad hoc piecemeal manner, manner that they're done now. In the 14th Street, the L train shut down you had the city make all of these plans, which were pretty good plans. And then the MTA comes and says, well, never mind, we're not going to do this. But we should still be doing things like dedicated busway on 14th Street and thinking longer term about 125th, 42nd, 34th. It, the idea of just getting private cars off of these streets altogether, even pedestrianizing more of East Midtown, meaning we did the Times Square side, 
but we never did the Rockefeller Center side. It is impossible to walk around for two months mm-hmm. out of the year when it's the holiday season. But no one seems to be thinking about these things strategically, or at least if they are, it's hard for them to get a, the, the top official backing to go through this sort of political blowback that always comes with these things. I think part part of Corey's argument when he was presenting this plan, which I also think is a great idea, is that, well, if communities understand how it all fits into this larger picture, they'd be more willing to go along. So, you know, what's your assessment of that take? It's a good general planning principle, right? Um, so do you think that's true? And also, so what would the kind of streetscape redesign look for look like in eastern Queens, where I live, for example, where folks are, are – get angry with bike lanes, which I think is silly, but, you know, it, it takes up their parking and they need cars because the bus routes are not logical yep. and not dependable and too slow, right? So what, what would it look like in other parts of the city that are not as heavily trafficked or commercial business districts? Yeah, I think that's the first thing is consistent, predictable, and more frequent bus service and faster bus service. And things like even if we increase the subway fare again, could we have a lower bus fare and you know you could maybe the bus if the subway costs 350 in a couple of years could the bus cost two dollars and so people can get a sort of reward for taking the bus and, st- and of course if you don't have a subway nearby but at least it if you do then getting on the bus keeping the subways from being overcrowded is a help but yes more bus service dedicated bus lanes and uh, the parking issue and the bike lane issue, I think in some cases the bike lanes are not well designed, which sort of like if you're like it's parts of Staten Island, you're crossing the street, bike, la- bike lane is there. It's sort of in the way of both pedestrians and the drivers. And it just sort of starts and stops with no rhyme or reason to it. So mm. a clearer, consistent design, I think, might alleviate some of the the public distrust but you'll never get rid of all the public opposition i mean people don't people don't like change and i think like parts of the city that don't have good subway service or don't have subway service at all like staten island it's a complex issue because some people choose to live in a more suburban urban environment because they like it, and that's their free choice, but that comes with certain drawbacks, including that you have to have a car, and there is a cost to that decision. And so if I say I want to live in eastern Queens or a Staten Island versus living in midtown Manhattan, that's great and that's wonderful, but there's no particular reason why it means it should come with free parking at the expense of trying mm. gradually to ameliorate some of these mm. things. Last couple of minutes, um, but uh, I just want to ask a couple of other quick things. I, I do want to note that bus redesign and the signal upgrades and some of these things are in Andy Byford's fast forward plan, which is now surrounded by a little bit more uncertainty about exactly where that's at and where it's heading. Um, do we have, I mean, what's your sort of sense about about where that's at and whether that's going to be pushed forward. Well, one thing everyone seems to agree on is that they all want to keep Byford, uh, you know, whether it's uh, Corey Johnson and uh, mayoral control. uh, You know, he certainly didn't say we need a complete leadership change. Uh, No one seems to be blaming him for this. But 
the fast forward plan, and it's not Byford's fault, but it's a year old now. So this sort of schedule that we were going to modernize all these subway lines within five years, arguably one of the years has already mm-hmm. gone by. And so it would be nice to see a firmer schedule of which lines are we going to do first? What's the mitigation for that above ground? What's the price for each individual line? And what's the specific schedule? That would give congestion pricing some more credibility. Right. It's almost like a a little bit of a rehab fast forward congestion pricing plan, uh, the MTA capital plan, and a city street use master plan should all be actually aligned and combined in some way to give people a real sense of what's going to happen and what's going to cost and what are the mitigation. Uh, but that's not happening. Yes. And there <laughs> so. are strange inconsistencies. Like we're, we're going to embark on this fast forward plan to modernize the subway signals. That's great. But then at the same time, the MTA is budgeting for continued decline subway ridership and sort of saying in its planning documents well, subway ridership is never going to come back. Well, that doesn't make any sense with the rest of what you're doing. Wow. Last question from me. Should we be at all talking about building more subway? Should we? Should that be part of the conversation at all? It seems, you know, I think Corey Johnson has sort of hinted at it a little bit as something we should be talking about, but nobody else seems to really be talking about it. Should that be on the table at all? I think it should. I mean, the second phase of the Second Avenue subway is proceeding if slowly and it's depending on federal money but we're kind of still in this remedial stage where it's still the 1980s and we've neglected the subways throughout the 60s and 70s so we have to do all this catch-up work and then we can think about building new subways Mm. but we should have done that already we should i mean we're 40 years along into rebuilding the subway so it would be better if we could be thinking more about expansion and less about remediation, but we're not, so. I mean, the document we should have had to help us clear this up a little bit and at least put some numbers to frame the discussion is the MTA needs assessment, yep. and we haven't gotten that document yet, and I think when it comes out, it will be very, very telling. And that's another thing that won't be released until after state budget season, plus it's so general. Like uh, Dick Ravitch, the former MTA chairman, is always saying, they should have a very clear itemized list of assets and their price and how much they've depreciated. So, I mean, even something like when Eastside Access opens, what's the, what is the value of that asset and how much is it going to depreciate every year? And that way we know, are they keeping up with the depreciation right. rather than come along 40 years later and say the whole thing fell apart and we need an emergency infusion of money but there's no clear like they'll often say it's a trillion dollar asset but there's no financial backing for that i mean and we have a huge problem in the public sector where we like to build these things and then forget about budgeting for the cost for their operation and maintenance you know and you have to be thinking about that at the beginning for the long term. so And you have to yeah. Yeah, make sure that the escalators and the elevators work right from the start and hey. ongoing. All right, before we go down, <laughs> before we go in a, in a darker direction, uh, I think we've identified a bunch of problems and a bunch of solutions, which uh, I feel good about as we wrap up the discussion here. Um, but seriously, uh, some, some very clear things that uh, leaders of – New York City transit, I don't mean the organization, I mean the the elected leaders and appointed leaders who deal with transit issues uh, really need to address here. 
Nicole Gelinas uh, of various titles, including Senior Fellow at the Manhattan Institute. Thank you very much for, for joining us. And you can find uh, Nicole's piece on Decongesting New York at City Journal. Thank you. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Maria. Thank you. Bye, all. Bye.